following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We um, are in the second week of this really fun series called Flannel Graph, and I don't know how many of you grew up in the church. I did. I know a lot of you did, but probably not all of you. And so if you've never encountered a flannel graph before, that's probably a good sign that you didn't. But the flannel graph is an uh, epic teaching tool. I mean, it's just, just the, the quintessential Sunday school lesson plan thing from when I was a kid and probably when my parents were a kid. I don't know if they still do it anymore. We don't do it here um, with our kids. We do it in the sanctuary with the, with the adults. Um, <laughs> But basically, it just tells the story of the Bible in these little felt characters, right? And uh, we did this maybe five years ago. I think we did it in 2009. And it was a huge hit, and we wanted to bring it back because a lot of you weren't here then, and those of you who were liked it enough that you're more than willing to, to go through it again. But the reason that we do this is to emphasize and explain and help you grasp the story of Scripture. Now, our ministry year from July 2014 to June 2015, uh, we are spending the whole year thinking about how we can be shaped by the words of Scripture. And one of the most important concepts that we have put on the plate in front of us as we seek to take in the words of Scripture is that Scripture tells a story. It tells the story of what God has done and is doing in the world. And at the center of that story is Jesus. And we are invited to be part of that story. I love N.T. Wright's image, uh, his metaphor that, that it's the, the, the story of the universe is a five-act play and we're in the, starting the, the fifth act is where we're at and, and we're, we are actors in the play, but we don't have a script. We're called to improvise into the spirit of what the, the playwright has given us so far. It's a beautiful metaphor. The reason that we want to do flannel graph is because the Old Testament part of that story is sometimes very fuzzy for us. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> and it, you know, I said last or two weeks ago when we started this that I grew up going to Sunday school and church twice on Sunday, every Wednesday, heard all the stories in the Bible. Well, they don't tell you all the stories in Sunday school because some of them are gruesome and um, awesome, too awesome for Sunday school. But I, I mean... <laughs> I knew all, the, all of the stories in the Bible, and I didn't know, even as a young adult, how they fit together. And I, th- I thought, as a pastor, I cannot let my congregation have that problem that I had. So I'm going to do my best, not just through Final Graph, but through every, you know, every minute I spend here with you at Artisan, to, to kind of help you understand what the story is and your, what your place is in it. And so the very ambitious task before us is to do the entire Old Testament in four weeks, Right? And we have four of these flannel graph boards. The first one is over here. If you'd like to see it, and you can play with the pieces. And just be careful around Adam and Eve. There's some, uh, you know, if, if you don't want your children to, to see all the parts of the body, you could make sure you leave the animal skins on it. But uh, it's over there. You can, you can uh, enjoy the, the art there. That was the first week we, t- we talked about f- the story from the moment of creation through the beginning of Abraham and, and his, uh, his son Isaac. And we're going to pick up from there. I'm going to try today to keep this into four movements uh, as we move through the next part of the scriptures. And I, um, as I do this, I'll try to not block everybody's view 
all the, like not any one person's view all the time. I'll try to block all your views equally. Is that okay? Um, if, I'm, if I'm standing in the same place too long and you can't see the stuff, just like go, eh, and I'll move. Happy to do it. So the first movement this week is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is one that you may have heard. It's scriptural. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Right? It's the, the first three patriarchs in this, um, in this story of God's calling a particular people to be his people. He made the promise, you remember last week, to Abraham that I will make of you a great nation and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And of course Abraham believed God but then kind of didn't believe God and tried to take matters into his own hand because he didn't have children and his wife was too old to have children. And um, We got to the point last week where the lesson was don't go camping with your dad. Right? <laughs> Um, the Abraham sacrifice Isaac story is um, very hard for us to hear, and uh, we didn't spend too much time on it last week. We won't spend any time on it this week. Um, and in fact, the whole this whole movement, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I'm going to probably blow through it pretty quickly. And the reason is that we are doing a whole series on the family of Abraham, starting in late October and running through until Advent begins. So uh, we're going to tell those stories with a little bit more detail then. So I'm going to try to go fast through it this morning. But what we see it, right from the beginning of this, this familiar story is that the hand of God is still present throughout the story, right? Uh, and this, this happens in, in spite of colossal mess-ups on the part of the people. You remember, um, if you are a real Sunday school rat, like I was, the story Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Did he have daughters too? The author didn't care because he was probably a dude. So let's just praise the Lord, right? And then the fun part, right arm, left arm. Like this is a ridiculous little hand motion thing. Well, Father Abraham is the father of the people, right? He's the father of the Jewish nation uh, out of which Christianity is birthed. And so we appropriate him as our spiritual father too. Well, he did have... Uh, many sons, and I'm going to put some of them down here. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, Isaac and Jacob, and, and things get interesting uh, pretty quickly here. Abraham's son, Isaac, marries Rebekah. And in what becomes a recurring theme, Rebekah is barren, right? I don't know if you can see Ed and Hi there. Um, but <laughs> some of the artwork is, you know, you'll have more fun when you get close to it. Uh, that's, a, that's a reference to a movie that I think came out in 1989, which shows exactly how hip I am. But Rebecca is barren. And they, the, the women are always barren, it seems. And they, the, the people always come up with crazy plans for how to get around that fact. Because, of course, the promise that God gives requires procreation. It requires children and next generations. And so they bring the handmaidens into the scene uh, on more than one occasion, and they try to fix the problem themselves. And sometimes they do really sinful and 
horrible and unfaithful things. And yet God always provides as he promised. And it seems that the story tells us he not only provides in the way that he promised, but he honors this kind of bastardized promise that that's the result of people trying to take matters into their own hands. He says, no, I'm going to do what I said I did, or I was going to do, but I'm also going to care for the generations that you have produced in trying to take things into your own hands. And that's a spiritual lesson that we can all learn. That God may have something perfect for us in mind, and we may, in our efforts to live into it, it's very likely that we may screw it up and come to a place where it looks like we have messed it up for good and we, there's, not, there's nothing to be done and then God can not only come in and give us what originally he wanted to do in, in and through us, but also work in and through the mess that we made. It's a beautiful thing. So Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the first one to emerge from the womb. And Jacob is the second one, grasping on to Esau's heel, which is a Hebrew image for being a sneaky, tricky person, which is what Jacob becomes. Esau, as the elder son, is entitled to a larger share of the inheritance and entitled to the, uh, the birthright, and the, he is the heir to the promise that God made to Abraham. But he's, he's also kind of a dumb redneck. <laughs> and he comes in one day and he's famished and, and, and uh, Jacob who's like uh, 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 well he, maybe he plays the clarinet or something you know he, he's, he's cooking stew he's making his lentil stew that he saw on Rachel Ray you know and, and Esau's like I'm so hungry give me some of that stew uh, and Jacob says well okay but how about you sell me your birthright and Esau's like that sounds like a good deal Stew looks delicious. And so Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. And yet, the, the transmission of this blessing needs to come through their father. And so he has to trick their father as well. And Isaac is old and feeble and blind. And so they, uh, so Jacob, the the beloved son, and Rebecca, his mother, cook up this plan for how to fool the dad, who apparently is also kind of a dumb redneck because he buys it when they put, like, animal hair on uh, Jacob's arms, right? Because Esau was an old hairy, hairy guy, right? And so he comes and he's like, yes, dad, uh, it's Esau, here for your blessing. And uh, <laughs> Isaac's like, that sounds good, here you go. Uh, and the blessing is, is given to Jacob, and God honors that. So now Jacob is the heir to the promise. So Jacob, fresh off the blessing and uh, needing to flee from his angry redneck brother, um, skips town to go find a wife, and he ends up working for Laban, who's a second cousin thrice removed or something like that. Um, And Laban has two daughters. He has one daughter, Rachel, who is a knockout, right? She's beautiful. And he has another daughter, Leah, who is yeah, not a knockout. 
And Jacob, being a typical man, which one does he want to marry? The pretty one? And so he agrees to work for his uncle, cousin Laban, for seven years for the right to marry Rachel. Now, speaking of God working through the ways that we mess things up, the, the patriarchy in these stories is palpable. Right? It's, it's dads selling their daughters in marriage for seven years of labor and all kinds of that stuff. Now, does that mean that this is God's design for the world? No, but that's what the world was like, right? and God works through that. So he works seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And after the seven years, they have the wedding. And they have the reception. And then they go to the wedding tent. And it's, I don't know if it was like a really thick veil or really good champagne toast or something, but Jacob doesn't realize that Laban has played a trick on him, and he wakes up the next morning, and how do I say this? Um, well, let's just say it is, it's too late, when he realizes that it's Leah that he's married, not Rachel as he was promised. And he says, Laban, you married me to Leah. And Laban's like, I know. <laughs> I know. How else was I going to get her to marry somebody, Right? So these two jerks, you know, have ended up with the undesirable wife and the undesirable daughter, and they've, but, but Jacob still wants to marry Rachel, and so Laban says, okay, just work another seven years, and you can, uh, you can marry Rachel, and so he does, and so now he has two wives, and guess how many of them are barren? Two, <laughs> but God provides children to both of them. It's especially interesting how he provides this for Leah. Leah is the unwanted, remember, unattractive wife. She was the consolation prize. She was what Jacob had to take if he wanted the woman that he really wanted. And some of you probably f- have felt the way that Leah might have felt, women and men alike, as if nobody really wants you. You're not good-looking enough. People wish they could be with somebody else. And even supposedly men of God are disgusted to wake up and find you in their bed. But Leah's son is named Judah. Do you know who comes from the line of Judah? Genealogically? Jesus. Jesus comes through Leah and her descendants. And so when the world thinks that you are ugly and your husband or your wife or your friends wish that they had ended up with somebody better, when even your father tricks you out of the house, God sees you. He sees you. And he knows you. And he loves you. And you are beautiful to him. And he can do amazing things through you. So this is going to bring us to our second movement this morning, which is Joseph in Egypt. Now, Jacob 
had 12 sons through his wives, Leah and Rachel, and their handmaidens, plural, because again, they tried all the tricks to get the kids that they thought they needed to see God's promises fulfilled. And Joseph is the only natural son of Rachel. And he comes late in the story, and Jacob is old. Now, if you have kids, you know that you love them a certain way, and their grandparents love them a different way, right? Grant, the grandparents aren't, some of you are grandparents in the room, and you're starting to, you know what this means, right? Like, you loved your kids, but these grandkids, I mean, it's been so long since you had a little one in the house, and you just want to cuddle them, Right? That's how Isaac felt about Joseph, this real little tot. He's the son of his favorite wife, and he's old, and you know, he just doesn't have the energy to say no Nintendo anymore. He's like, let's just play together, whatever you want to do. Joseph, you are my bud. Right? I love that one of our kids' class name is the Buds, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go to the class with my buds. Now, if you are a younger brother, you know this. If you happen to be the 11th of 12, this is probably very true for you. But younger brothers kind of get the short end of the stick, don't they? All the bigger brothers beat on them and like take advantage of them and are mean to them. And to make matters worse, Joseph was a bit of a dreamer. And he had some dreams that maybe he should have just written down in his dream journal (laughs) and never shared with anybody. Because they were dreams about how he was going to become great and all his brothers would bow down to him and his mother and father would bow down to him. And he told them about the dream. Like, little brothers, if you ever have this kind of dream, just, just pretend it didn't happen. Keep it to yourself. Well, Joseph's brothers uh, are angry, right? And they plot to get rid of this little... What's the word that we that big brothers are using for little brothers these days? I don't know. So they take him out and they throw him in a pit. And they take his special coat that his dad made him and didn't make them a coat. It's all fancy. And they, they put some animal blood on it and they bring it back to the father and say, geez, I'm real sorry, but Joseph's... Joseph's dead. Dang. <laughs> Can I have his stereo? <laughs> Stereo's not even a thing anymore. Like, it's like, whatever. <laughs> so Joseph's down in the pit, and some traders come by, and they pull him up out of the pit, and he says, thank you. And they're like, well, wait for it, because we're actually going to sell you into slavery now. <clears throat> and they cart him off to where? Egypt, home of pyramids and the Nile, and the jovial pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now Joseph is in Egypt, and he uh, ends up in prison, and we don't talk about that story, but the fact that he's such a dreamer ends up working to his advantage, because the pharaoh has some dreams that he can't interpret. And it becomes known to him that Joseph is an interpreter of dreams, and so he asks Joseph to interpret these dreams. Joseph interprets them to mean that 
there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land, followed by seven years of famine. And he says, so King, Pharaoh, Steve Martin, you should gather up all of the produce during the years of plenty because you're going to need it during the years of famine. And guess what? Everybody around you is going to be in need during the years of famine, and you can be the one to provide for them. And sure enough, that's what happens. There are seven years of plenty during which the Pharaoh and his court stockpile the food, and then seven years of famine. And if I make it through this morning without saying phantom instead of famine, we'll have won. But seven years of famine during which people from the surrounding nations come and ask for some of the the stores that they've laid aside during the years of plenty. And who should come to Egypt to ask for food but Jacob and the other brothers, Joseph's other brothers. And there's a lot of really, um, really neat stories in that encounter where uh, he tricks them and then there's this happy reunion and you can read about that in the Bible. I won't go into all those details now. I'm going to move over to the other side while we get ready for the third movement. Suffice it to say, the Israelites, the people of God, the family of Abraham, end up living in Egypt. And as is so often the case, things go well for a generation, and then things don't go so well. Because when the the happy, jovial Steve Martin Pharaoh dies, he's replaced by a stern, unfunny, Yule Brennan Pharaoh, right? Is that who that is? I don't even know old movies. (laughs) And this Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph from Adam. Huh? actually repeated that joke from five years ago. I think it worked better five years ago, so next time I'll just leave it out. But he doesn't know who Joseph is. He has no kind of affectionate ties to Joseph and his family, to the Israelites. And he sees what we can now identify as the the proliferation of the promise. The Israelites are thriving in Egypt, and they're getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger, and their community is threatening to overwhelm the community of the Egyptians. And he says, well, we don't want that because then they might side with our enemies and we would lose our power. So why don't we just enslave them? And so they do. So they make the Israelites their slaves. They force them to make bricks seven days a week, which, by the way, in one of the tellings of the Ten Commandments, uh, the Sabbath is given its uh, rationale as God rested on the seventh day. And in the other telling of the Ten Commandments, the rationale for the Sabbath is that when you were in Egypt, you had to work every day. So now that you're free, spoiler alert, they get out. Um, Now that you're free, you shouldn't work seven days a week. You should rest on the seventh day. And also the calendar, the Egyptian calendar, we want to reject that and make our own new thing, but that's a a different story. Well, it's the same story, but it's, you know. (laughs) So... Enslaving them doesn't turn out to be enough because they're still thriving. So Pharaoh comes up with another plan, which is, why don't we kill every baby boy who's born to the Israelites? And stupidly, he tries to engage the midwives of Egypt in this plan. Now, 
I have met some midwives. Both of our boys were birthed by midwives. Oh, they were, my, my wife gave birth to them. I want to be very clear about this, that she's, <laughs> she did all the important hard work. But she would agree with me that the midwives are wonderful people. And there's one thing we know about midwives is that they love babies, right? They're not going to help the Pharaoh with this scheme. And so they come up with this lie, which is a ridiculous lie, but apparently Pharaoh never took Lama's class because he doesn't know that they're lying when they say, the, Egypt, or the, the Hebrew women, they just give birth so fast. They call for the midwife, and by the time we're there, the baby's already been born. It's too late to, to kill them. Like, he doesn't know how long labor actually takes place. <laughs> it's like, you idiot. <laughs> they can't give birth in 10 minutes. Weren't you there when we had our kids? But anyway, so he comes up with a new plan, which is if we can't kind of surreptitiously kill them as they emerge from the womb, let's just be a little more overt and we'll throw them into the Nile River. And so this is the conditions in which a key figure in Israel's history is born. We're talking, of course, about Moses, whose mother gives birth to him and then places him into a a basket, a little vessel that floats on the water and saves the people of God. Does this sound familiar at all? Right? So she puts him in a basket on the Nile River, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him and pulls him out, and that's where his name comes from. It means pulled him out. Moses' older sister happens to be there and arranges for Moses' mother to be his wet nurse. And so the family is reunited in Pharaoh's court, an interesting kind of way. Now Moses, um, now remember, this is the pre-NRA Moses, right? This is, this is the, uh, um, the Charlton Heston Moses bef- before he became angry and so forth. Um, we have some life member, NRA members in the congregation. I don't mean to insult you at all, but... Um, the, the NRA Charlton Heston was meaner than the Moses Charlton Heston. I think we can all agree, right? <clears throat> like, I don't have enough content to get through today. I'm going to make Charlton Heston references. Um, <clears throat> you can pull those references from my cold, dead hands. <clears throat> so Moses... Uh, <laughs> Moses uh, comes on, uh, as he's entering adulthood, he comes on a scene where there's an Egyptian um, harassing a Hebrew man, and he kills the Egyptian. And he buries him, and he thinks he's gotten away with it until a little bit later when somebody says, there's an argument, and somebody says, well, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And that's when he realizes, oh, no, I'm in trouble because this has become known, and he flees from Egypt. And he encounters... This burning bush. Now, I am told that uh, spontaneous combustion of certain types of plants in this part of the world at this time of history was actually a fairly common thing. But what's miraculous about it, even if that was a common thing, is that this bush is burning, but it's not consumed. The fire just keeps going, and the voice, you've heard this story, calls to him, says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, and says, I'm going to... Through you, I'm going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is reluctant, of course, and he says, I, 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 I don't like talking to people. And so he says, okay, bring your brother. So now God is giving the message through Moses, and Moses is giving it through Aaron, and Aaron, his brother, is giving it to the Pharaoh. It's like this uh, cosmic game of telephone. Uh, but the message comes through clear. 
Interestingly enough, this is where we start to see the name of God emerge. He says, who should I tell them is, is demanding to let the people go? And he says, um, his name is I am who I am, or I'll be who I will be. It's some variation on the Hebrew verb to be, that God's name is essentially being, is, am. And so he goes to Pharaoh and says, God says to let his people go. And Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to do that. They're actually really making a lot of bricks right now. (laughs) And there's the stories, this back and forth. So God visits these plagues on the Egyptians. You've heard that you... What's, the, what's the, uh, the Disney movie about this? I can never remember the name of it. The Prince of Egypt, thank you. Right. Streamworks? Really? Well, now I learned something today too. Good. <laughs> so the plagues come um, as a message to Pharaoh saying that if you don't let the people go, you're going to be in trouble. The first one is that the Nile River turns to blood. Right? And then I don't have a graphic for each of the other ones, but we'll just do it like this. How's this? There are ten plagues. <clears throat> right. Many of them seem to involve uh, bugs of some kind. <clears throat> Raid? The, the worst one, the, the hardest one, the one that works but it's really hard for us to hear as people who generally don't like our God to be killing babies is that he, God, will send the angel of death and kill every firstborn in Egypt. Does this sound familiar, by the way, though? Pharaoh is reaping what he sowed. God gives the uh, Israelites a way to avoid this fate, and it's from that that the very important Jewish holiday of Passover emerges. Right? Because he, he tells them to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the, the lintel so that the angel of death will pass over that door. And uh, knowing that it's an it's a Israelite family within, Pharaoh wakes to find his firstborn son dead and finally says, Go. And so the people flee. And there's the story as they leave of the, the parting of the Red Sea. Sure enough, Pharaoh's army pursues them, right? And here we get another Sunday school song, right? You all know this one. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Whoopee! Right? <laughs> This is how twisted Sunday school songs are. There are literally horses and riders being buried and killed by the waters of the Red Sea that the Israelites have passed through, and we're singing whoopee. I just do not, it's a wonder that we don't all turn out to be like psychopaths. I don't, I think that might be the last Sunday school song I'll sing for you this morning, but no promises. There are a lot of songs. So they have fled Egypt, they've gotten away, the waters have cascaded in behind them, closing off the Pharaoh and his pursuers, and 
they are ready for the next movement. The last movement of the day, which is what happens to them when they're wandering in the wilderness. Could you guess how many days it takes after the Lord has dramatically freed his people from slavery in Egypt before they start complaining about how bad things are? Three days. (laughs) By my reading of the text, you can check me on this, uh, Exodus 15-ish. They're complaining already. (laughs) They actually say to Moses, why did you lead us out of Egypt where we sat by the fires (laughs) and enjoyed ourselves? To be out here where we're going to starve and die of thirst. Because it isn't long before this large group of people doesn't have any food or not, not enough water to provide the sustenance that they need. And so God provides miraculously for them in these ways. There's the the gathering of the manna, which is Hebrew for what is that? As in, the stuff fell overnight and it's on the ground. They're supposed to gather it to eat it, and they say, what is that? Um, They need water, and God arranges for water to pour forth from a rock, which works for a while, and then they complain again that they don't have water, and Moses gets angry with them and like smacks his staff against the rock, and the water comes out. But that's not how God wanted to do it. And so Moses is told, guess what? You are not going to see the promised land because you took matters into your own hands. And all these poor people are going to have to wander around until you die. (laughs) Something like that. So they do. They wander and wander and wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Some of the other stuff that happens there may be familiar to you. Do you remember the story of the, uh, the, the, the serpent curse? where there's the, the venomous serpents, and um, the solution is to cast a serpent in bronze and to put it on a pole and put it in the center of camp, and anybody who's bitten by one of these venomous snakes can just go look to the pole and, and be healed. Right? And of course, John uh, evokes this image later when God's salvation is hung on a pole. And the cure for the bite of the serpent is to look to Jesus crucified. Of course, much of the action in the wilderness takes place on Mount Sinai. Where Moses goes up and the clouds descend. It's in this location that he receives the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, the Ten Words, the Decalogue. And you begin to see what I think is one of the most interesting things about the way uh, legalism emerges in the Scriptures. Remember we started last week with the, the one rule, you had one job, don't, did you eat the, there's only one tree you can't eat from. That was the one rule, and now, now we have ten the Ten Commandments, right? And these end up not being specific enough or something. And so pretty soon the Mosaic Law is composed of 613 specific rules. And by the time we get to, to Jesus, this set of rules is not good enough for the most legalistic people, the Pharisees. And they, they, 
they do what's called building a hedge around the law, right? Not only are we not going to do what's prohibited in the law, but we're not even going to get near the edge of the line. We're going to stay way back here, and we think you should too, and actually if you don't, you're kind of a bad person. All right. This is the disease of legalism. The other thing that happens, uh, really kind of fascinating story, is that while Moses is up on the, the mountain, um, Aaron's left in charge, and the people get impatient, and they think, well, you must have left us behind, so all of our neighbors around us, all the other nations, worship idols. So Aaron, could you make us an idol that we could worship? And uh, he agrees to do that, and they melt down all their earrings and things and make this, this golden calf, and they bow down to it like the pagan nations around them. And Of course, this is not God's design for the world. And then the last thing I want to cover while we're uh, in the wilderness here is the Ark of the Covenant. Remember we talked about the Ark last week or two weeks ago? You can see it over here. And Ark, Ark is a word that just means like it's a box, right? In the case of Noah's Ark, it's a very big box that floats on the water, but it's a box. The Ark of the Covenant, um, here's one image of it because we've got to get Indian here somewhere, right? Is a box that contains... God's presence, and eventually the Nazis try to steal it, but um, (laughs) what you can't quite see from your distance is that on the top of this box are two cherubim, two little angels, right, with their wings framing this empty space in the middle. Here's a better picture for understanding that. God's presence is localized right here in this space between the two angels, Which is why I think it's a really beautiful picture when we get to the New Testament and see the resurrection story and the empty tomb and what is framing that empty space but two angels. God's presence is, 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 is in the resurrected Jesus. And I had a tabernacle image around here somewhere, but I'll, I think I lost it. So, the, the Ark of the Covenant was carried around with them as they wandered, and they would construct these temporary worship structures. It's called a tabernacle, just a tent of meeting. And they would put the Ark inside there, and uh, the, the clouds would descend and lead them around, the pillar of fire by night, lead them around. And they wander, and they wander, and they wander. And after 40 years, uh, Moses is on the brink of death, and the people are on the brink of the promised land, just about to enter in, and Moses gives one last sermon. It's a very long one because he tells the whole story of their time with God together. Um, this is, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's the second uh, giving of the law. Is that right? Do I have the language there right, Chris? Deuteronomos? Yeah. It's the second telling of the story of God's work. See, I have, we're lucky at Artisan to have language scholars that know the language better than I do. But it tells essentially the same story in a, in a kind of a different voice. It's Moses reminding the people about the most important things in their story, which in an oral culture was a very important thing. I think we've lost some of that in our highly literate culture. It's, um, it would be possible for me to assume that you, you can all read the Bible, right? I think I would be correct if I assumed that. Even the youngest ones in the room at the moment know how to read. 
what would be not okay for me to assume is that because you know how to read, that you do. <laughs> and so we have to keep retelling these stories to each other. We can't, any of us can't, none of us can assume that the story is taking root in our lives. That's why we're spending so much time thinking about story with a capital S. That's what Flannel Graph is about. I want you to see this story. I want you to retell it to each other. I want you to come up to these boards and play with the pieces and look at them and share them with your kids and with your friends and laugh at them and let them sink into you a little bit more deeply. Um, By the way, if anybody would like to help me get these flannel graph boards hung um, on the walls there, these designs on the walls are pretty, but they're also supposed to be functional. They're supposed to hold art. And we have an art commission that's coming up in Advent, but until then, I'd like to put the flannel graph boards up there after they're finished each Sunday. So if somebody's good with hanging and so forth, please come see me. I'd love to have those up there. Uh, But that's the story for today. Moses dies. The leadership of the people of Israel is transferred to Joshua. And when Joshua dies, there's a bit of a leadership vacuum, which is where we'll pick up the story next week. So Flanograph Week 2, Captives and Wanderers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph and Egypt, Slavery and Deliverance, Wilderness and Complaining. That's the story for today. Let's stop for a minute before we sing again and conclude our service and, and pray together. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, We pray that uh, through these common materials, felt and paper and ink, we would be drawn into your story with a capital S, what you have been doing and continue to want to do in your world through your people. You are our God and we are your people and we want very much to be part of that story and we ask that you would help us to see our place in these stories and in the story that's being improvised as we live our lives as people of faith, followers of the true word of God, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And it's his table that we respond at. The story of Scripture, as I mentioned when we did the Creed, has its center, the story of the universe has its center on Jesus. And we retell that story every week when we come to the communion table. We remember his broken body, his shed blood. We engross and immerse ourselves into it. We actually take it into our own bodies every week. And so the table is open for any who would respond to Jesus today. And as I often say, you don't have to be any good at it to come to the table. As a matter of fact, the table's greatest reminder is of grace, which essentially means you don't have to be any good at it. (laughs) And you have to realize that you aren't. So communion is especially for you if you feel like you're terrible at being a Christian, (laughs) if you're terrible at believing God, if you're terrible at doing the work that he's called you to do. This is a place of grace. This is the table of the Lord. It is open to you. Let's respond to him uh, in worship and in the sacraments.
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.